When billions of ratepayer dollars are earmarked for clean energy subsidies, you know, wind, solar, like that, but the New York State Public Services Commission orders $7.6 billion of those dollars to go to four aging, unprofitable nuclear reactors in an illegal bailout. You have to wonder how such a thing could happen. And then, among other things, you learn... They did not look at the financials of any of these reactors that claim that they are having financial hardship. All the reactor owners had to do was say, we're going to shut down because we're not making any money. And they said, oh, good, we'll give you the subsidy. They didn't ever actually look at their books. Well, when you hear that due diligence does not seem to be part of New York State's process when there's money available to be slurped up by the nuclear industry, you start to see yet again that there is a very uncomfortable seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we dig into the recent court decision that is allowing a group of New York State NGOs, small local businesses, and the Nuclear Information and Resource Service to continue their lawsuit challenging billions in ratepayer subsidies to four aging, unprofitable nuclear reactors in upstate New York. We talk with attorney Susan H. Shapiro and Tim Judson, executive director of NEARS, about what it is taking to stop this illegal nuclear bailout from happening. David and Goliath at its best. We'll also hear from James Friedberg, producer of the HBO documentary Atomic Homefront. We'll be exploring the potential impact of that powerful film about illegally buried World War II nuclear weapons waste in North St. Louis and the devastating impact of the Westlake landfill and its toxic load on the health and lives of those who lived nearby and didn't know it was there. We will also have numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, activist shoutouts, and more honest nuclear information than Mike Pence was willing to share with anyone at the Olympics. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 13, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out this week with the bad news from the Hanford site in southeastern Washington state. On-site monitoring by the Washington State Department of Health has found elevated readings of radioactive contamination at the Hanford site. In December, demolition work at Hanford's plutonium finishing plant was suspended after wind picked up radioactive particles and spread them. 
The highest measurements were in November and December, according to a letter sent Tuesday by Clark Halverson, Assistant Secretary to the State Department of Health Air Samples. In some locations, there were concentrations of americium and plutonium found at 5 to 10 times federal emission standards for a year-long exposure. According to internationally acclaimed physician and pediatrician, Dr. Helen Caldicott, the cancer cycle is initiated by a single mutation in a single regulatory gene in a single cell in the human body. The mutation can be caused by a single exposure to a single radioactive element. In other words, there is no such thing as an insignificant exposure to radionuclides. As to the Hanford site, Americium and plutonium give off hard-to-detect alpha radiation that was found up to 10 miles away from the demolition site, a spread Halverson described as troubling because of its greater potential for damage in biological tissue and the potential for lifelong internal contamination. Tom Carpenter, executive director of watchdog group Hanford Challenge, says the demolition project is responsible for one of the most serious spreads of radioactive material in the decades of cleanup work at Hanford. He said, I have never seen the State Department of Health take this tone and request this kind of information. This is a big deal. Hundreds of workers involved in the demolition zone were tested and 31 of them were found to have inhaled or ingested plutonium. Dr. Erica Leibelt, a toxicologist and executive director as well as medical director of the Washington Poison Center, said, Plutonium will go to the bones and sit there for a long, long time. Your risks are lung cancer, liver cancer, and bone cancer, because that's where plutonium heads in the body. According to an investigation by King 5 Television in Seattle and reporter Susanna Frame, the plutonium spread made it onto 36 cars. Seven of them were personal vehicles driven off the site by unsuspecting employees. The vehicles, with contamination on them, were driven into town and to their homes. One of those cars belonged to a worker who was contaminated internally six months earlier, and he spoke on condition of anonymity to say, We got in our cars and went home to our families. We hugged our wives, our children, our grandchildren, and did our daily routines. So we don't know what we took anywhere. And that leads us to... Nuclear Hot Seed Nuclear Hot Seed Nuclear hot seed, none that sound a week. At the very moment that the contamination problems at the Hanford site are being known in a way that cannot be ignored, the Trump administration is proposing a $230 million cut in cleanup spending. The National Nuclear Security Agency, the Department of Energy's semi-autonomous nuclear weapons agency, is receiving a $2.2 billion overall boost to $15.1 billion. But no such luck for Hanford. Their Office of River Protection stands to lose $61 million, and the Department of Energy's Richland Operation Office will lose $169 million. This at the very same time that critics have said Hanford's budget must be dramatically increased to some $3 billion a year to achieve legal cleanup milestones. 
Does this administration think that the radiological toxins that are at the Hanford site are just going to sit there and wait around and do nothing? Do they not understand the kind of lethal contamination that is coming off that site and already impacting people and the environment? Oh, yeah, that's right. They don't believe in science in the White House. Maybe more funds will be available for Hanford if they just stage a parade. And that's why the Trump administration, with their proposed cuts to clean up at Hanford, are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. We will also have a link up on our website to an article about Trump ordering the Department of Energy to prepare for the possibility of the first U.S. nuclear test in 26 years. A cyber attack on the corporate computer system at Entergy's Louisiana headquarters affected computer systems at all the company's nuclear plants, including Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Neil Sheehan of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission said that all nuclear plants must meet certain cybersecurity standards, which includes the separation of critical and non-critical systems. According to Sheehan, no plant safety or security functions have been impacted. However, he neglected to mention that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has approved a cybersecurity extension for Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station and that Entergy will not have to comply with certain safety requirements because the extension gives the company until December 31, 2020 to make the changes and the facility is scheduled to permanently shut down as of May 31, 2019. So I guess we all have to keep our fingers crossed and hope that there is no further breach of cybersecurity at Pilgrim between now and shutdown. Nuclear Regulatory Commission regulators took another step backwards in their streamlining of rules for decommissioning nuclear reactors. The five reactors undergoing decommissioning submitted 49 requests for exemptions and license amendments to date, which ranged from the elimination of the 10-mile emergency planning zone surrounding the plant to reductions in required liability insurance for off-site problems. A large number of these license amendments and exemptions have already been granted. Mary Lampert, president of Pilgrim Watch, a local Pilgrim nuclear power station opponent, said... The NRC appears eager to further chip away decommissioning requirements that are already too lenient. And Diane Turco, president of the Cape Downwinders, expressed outrage over the proposed changes, saying, The recommendations fly in the face of public input and security. A spent fuel pool fire at Pilgrim could potentially contaminate an area from Manhattan to Nova Scotia. These recommendations are rule-breaking not rule-making. And Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey said, Pilgrim's spent fuel pool contains nearly four times more radioactive waste than it was originally designed to hold. We need the NRC to post the danger sign outside these fuel pools and ensure dangerous nuclear waste is moved to safer storage before a nuclear disaster occurs. In South Carolina, sticker shock. This boondoggle at the VC Summer partially built and now abandoned facility near Columbia, South Carolina, began back in 2006. That's when South Carolina decided to allow utilities to bill customers for the cost of nuclear construction as it happened, rather than waiting until the power plants were completed. 
Brett Bercy, executive director of SC Progressive Network, a social justice group, said, Rather than charge our elder Aunt Minnie in 10 years when it goes online, this was presented as a consumer-friendly way to pay for construction as they go. An audit by Bechtel Corporation two years ago found the construction plans and design were faulty and that the project was poorly managed. As one legislator put it, the entire project was built to fail. But utility customers have already been billed some $2 billion for the reactors, meaning the average rate payer is paying an additional $250 a year. Under current regulations, the utilities continue to collect $37 million per month for something that isn't going to happen. Don't we wish we could all be on the dole like that? Some legislators have argued that consumers shouldn't be on the hook for the billions already charged. Yeah, think? But it may not be legally possible to recover the money. In Utah, the state House of Representatives has approved giving a $1.72 million tax break every year to Utah-based nuclear waste disposal company Energy Solutions. In a revelation that some would say is no coincidence, the Salt Lake Tribune reports that the Salt Lake City-based Energy Solutions was the largest single donor to lawmakers last year, giving $67,700 to 43 lawmakers. That's a pretty low price per lawmaker, but I guess when you look at it clearly, it's 1 plus 1 equals 2. Over to Japan, where recent stories of an enormous radiation spike coming out of Fukushima Daiichi have been highly exaggerated. New higher radiation levels have been measured, but that is because a robot was able to get close inside the reactor vessel of Unit 2. Proximity created the higher readings, not some new leak or spike. According to Nancy Faust of SimplyInfo.org, the same thing happened almost exactly one year ago, the last time a robot got close enough to measure higher readings. By way of comparison, the readings that were just taken were lower than those in the same general area in the same general area taken by robot inspection in 2017. This is not to minimize how bad the radiation levels are at Fukushima Daiichi or the continuing contamination of the Pacific Ocean, but to provide clarity that this is not some new event, just a closer reading of how bad things really are. Last Tuesday, February 6th, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and his predecessor, Naoto Kan, had a rare face-to-face showdown at the lower house budget committee session in Japan over their nuclear energy policies. Abe indicated he will continue to support restarting nuclear plants around Japan. While Kan condemned Abe's position as calculating only what is convenient for yourself. In an argument over the true cost of nuclear power generation, Neither Khan nor Abe would budge from their viewpoints. Why do they even bother? In French Polynesia, that country's president announced via Twitter that he had decided to hire a Japanese geneticist to carry out a scientific study on the consequences of nuclear testing. He explained via social media, Nuclear tests and thyroid cancer. Rather than choosing between unfounded proposals and the legitimate concerns of Polynesians, I have made the choice to entrust the study to Dr. Katsumi Furitsu, a well-known Japanese geneticist. 
The announcement comes two weeks after several articles were published in French media about the work of Dr. Christian Soor on child descendants of the nuclear test victims. And in Russia, a radiation hazard warning was sent out this morning, February 13, 2018. The pre-recorded warning, which aired at about 9 a.m., alerted residents to what it said were high levels of radiation in the atmosphere in the region 250 kilometers northeast of Moscow. It advised people to protect themselves, tightly close their homes or offices, and stay inside and secure food and water from possible contamination by radiation. Speculation had the source coming from nuclear reactor facilities, an accident in transport of nuclear waste, including spent fuel, nuclear weapons, or other nuclear materials. But the Emergency Situations Ministry later said that a technical glitch caused the false warning to be broadcast. What's going on? False alerts in Hawaii, Japan, at the Shearson-Harris nuclear reactor in North Carolina, and now Russia? Copycats, zeitgeist, or research? We'll never know. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, someone in the entertainment industry once asked me, is there really enough nuclear news to fill a program every week? It was hard to not laugh out loud. I mean, nuclear bombs, radioactive nuclear waste, leaking reactors, bank-breaking cleanups, ongoing radiation contamination. When it comes to nuclear, there seems to be no end to the stories, the insanity, the numbnutsery of it all. And let's face it, most mainstream media pays only fleeting attention when a story bobs to the top of the news cycle, like it just did in North St. Louis, or when we get hit with so much ramp-up in plans for nuclear war that you can't look away. But that coverage often proves to be hit or miss, or hit and run when the news cycle shifts and they move on. That's why you and so many others turn here to Nuclear Hot Seat for your nuclear news. Everything reported here is researched, verifiably sourced, and footnoted, even if it is delivered with more than a little attitude. But as the stories come flying at us thick and fast, it's important to keep up with nuclear developments with an understanding of continuity and context. And that's what Nuclear Hot Seat is here to provide along with interviews with genuine experts on all things nuclear who do not go along with the radioactive industry's party line. In order to provide you with this information every week, we incur costs. And that's why I reach out for your help every week. Without your support, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue following the onslaught of nuclear stories. So if you're grateful for the news background information, interviews, and insights you get from the show. Help us keep doing it. Yes, it's the D word. I'm asking for a donation so we can meet our E word, expenses, with the M word, money. Now, you can make a one-time donation of any size or set up a monthly sustaining donation. Either way, just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button. And for those of you on a budget, and who isn't these days, we've set up an easy and expensive way for you to help us out. Buy Nuclear Hot Seat a monthly cup of coffee. Send the show a monthly $5, which is the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista. Trust me, 
It'll be going into the show's many online expenses, not to any overpriced coffee. You can make that coffee donation easily by checking on the big green donate button at NuclearHotSeat.com. Please do what you can to support us so that Nuclear Hot Seat can keep supporting you in getting information that shows what's really going on in the nuclear world. Know that whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. One of the great nuclear industry con jobs has been to pass nuclear reactors off as some kind of cure for global warming, touting it as a zero-carbon emissions energy source while completely ignoring the lethal amounts of radiation created and released by this deadly technology. But the nuclear industry's well-funded propaganda juggernaut has successfully gaslighted a lot of people who really should know better into believing a load of hooey, with the result that two states, New York and Illinois, have already begun paying millions of dollars earmarked to support genuinely sustainable low-carbon energy and giving it instead to nuclear corporations to bail out and underwrite their aging, unprofitable nuclear reactors. Of course, citizens' groups and NGOs have been fighting back, and you're about to hear from the inside of one of those battles exactly what it looks like. A few weeks ago, the New York State Supreme Court in Albany County rejected the nuclear industry's efforts to dismiss a lawsuit challenging the billions of dollars in ratepayer subsidies that were being paid to nuclear reactor operators. Two of the leads in the groups fighting back are my guests this week. Susan H. Shapiro is a New York State attorney whose practice focuses on environmental protection and land use in the Hudson Valley. Since 9-11, she has been co-counsel on the groundbreaking litigation against Indian Point's violation of the Clean Water Act for thermal and radiation pollution of the Hudson River, against the NRC for reducing fire safety standards at Indian Point. She helped lay the groundwork opposing relicensing of aging nuclear reactors by filing 50-5-0 contentions against relicensing. She participated in the Presidential Blue Ribbon Commission on Nuclear Waste and has represented whistleblowers and much more. Tim Judson has been Executive Director of Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NEARS, since the start of 2014. Previously, he had been Chair of the Board of Citizens Awareness Network, a leader in the successful campaign to close the Vermont Yankee Reactor, and co-founder of Alliance for a Green Economy in New York. I spoke with Susan and Tim on Friday, February 9, 2018. Susan H. Shapiro and Tim Judson, thank you so much for joining us this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks for having us, Libby. Yeah, thank you. Let's start out with a sense of the situation in New York State. What is the New York Clean Energy Standard, and what was it and is it intended to accomplish? Well, the New York's Clean Energy Standard is an energy policy that was put in place uh, by the state's utility commission in August 2016. And basically what it does is it packages uh, a renewable energy standard, much like what, what California has. Uh, New York's uh, was set at 50% by 50% renewable energy by 2030. But it packaged the renewable energy program 
with this massive nuclear subsidy program um, to prop up four of the financially failing nuclear reactors in New York State. It's this combination of support for renewable energy with this really huge dirty energy bailout with the nuclear power plants that was so controversial and, and remains controversial. How in the world has the nuclear industry been able to position itself as clean energy and zero emissions and convince the state of New York and elsewhere that it should be getting money that is really intended for renewables? That's the question that we're asking in this case. We believe that the nuclear energy corporations proposed to the state the idea that they were zero emissions source of energy and that they contribute to clean energy. New York State specifically in their state energy policy, is that the name, Tim, is the SEP, State Energy Policy? The State Energy Plan. The State Energy Plan specifically does not mention nuclear as clean energy, but the Public Service Commission on their own agreed with the nuclear operators and said, oh, well, you said you're you're zero emissions, so we're going to, based on this claim of you being zero emissions, we're going to give you these subsidies because they made a determination without any kind of support, without anything in the record, basically, that putting money towards continuing the failing nuclear plants would prevent carbon from getting into, additional carbon from being released. They never considered using the same money that they're putting towards nuclear for actually true renewables. And they created this tier, this third tier, it's called tier three of the clean energy standard. And that's what we're challenging. What we really have seen with, you know, with the adoption of these energy programs that that declare nuclear a clean source of energy is the result of, it's been more than a 20-year public relations campaign by the nuclear industry. Uh, to rebrand nuclear power as clean energy. One of the first iterations of this was actually an ad campaign um, that the Nuclear Energy Institute ran starting in the late 90s, where they were declaring nuclear clean air energy, trying to brand nuclear as clean air energy. And we actually won a lawsuit, won a claim through the Better Business Bureau that this was false. And actually, NEI had to retract this ad campaign on that basis. But they've continued to push this message that nuclear is clean power. And they really I think, saw the trend towards renewables and concerns about climate really driving energy policy. So they began to try to latch and sort of latch nuclear onto the climate train through public relations techniques. And so I think what we're seeing is the effect of this corporate PR that has really sort of you know, tried to wind its way into policymaking. And that's really culminated in New York's clean energy standard with this nuclear bailout. How much money are we talking about here and where is it supposed to come from? We calculated, they did not actually have a calculation in the order, but we actually calculated the amount based on their proposal, and it's roughly $7.6 billion over a 12-year period. And the money is supposed to come from surcharges on every ratepayer in the state of New York's electric bills. And it was supposed to be put on as a surcharge, as a separate line item. It doesn't seem to be that they've actually done it that way. And Tim, how much have they paid out so far? There's no public reporting on it yet, but what the number that the Public Service Commission um, gave in the order where they approved the subsidy was that the projected cost over the first two years was going to be over $480 million a year. 
So effectively, New Yorkers are paying about $40 million in the surcharge on their bills every month. So we expect that, you know, since the program started in, on April 1 of last year, the subsidies started to flow. We expect that the ratepayers in New York have paid over $400 million already in subsidies to these nuclear reactors. That's outrageous. That is flat out outrageous. So what has been done to fight back or push back against these actions that have allowed the nuclear industry and these four reactors to gain subsidy money intended for genuinely clean, sustainable energy sources? There has been a public campaign called Stop the Cuomo Nuclear Tax, which I'm not directly associated with. I don't know if Tim is. But we started this litigation once the order came out, challenging it, challenging this portion of the order, the Tier 3, the nuclear subsidization. And we have succeeded in overcoming the, the nuclear industries and the state's motion to dismiss. And so that's the stage we are, are at at this point. That means that the issues will be heard by the court on their merits. And we will not be thrown out just because of a claim of not having standing or not having stated a cause of action. So we've overcome that at this point, and now we're preparing for the next stage of this battle. How big a deal is this particular decision by the court? We think it's very big because other states have had similar programs and have been dismissed on a motion to dismiss, and they're now appealing those motions to dismiss. So we're going to be the first of these kind of cases that are going to actually go to a trial on the merits, on the facts of the case and on the law. The other thing that New York State did and which we challenged is procedurally they handled this very poorly. They rushed this through because Exelon said, we have to either get this money, know that we're getting this money, or we're not going to be able to refuel in time. And so they pushed this thing through in, in an extraordinarily short time. And by doing that, they violated the State Administrative Procedures Act in a variety of ways. And we're challenging that, the procedural aspects of it. So you're contending in the lawsuit that these nuclear subsidies aren't just bad policy. They're actually illegal. Yes. Yes. They were illegally enacted. They did not follow the State Administrative Procedures Act. And that's not a discretionary agency decision. All agencies have to follow the State Administrative Procedures Act. And it has to do with publication in the state registry. It has to do with notice. It has to do with enough time for the public to comment and a waiting period before a bill or a legislation or this isn't legislation, an order is enacted. And they didn't do any of that. And the other thing is that they have to use plain language and factual language in their order. And one of the contentions we have is that calling nuclear zero emissions is factually untrue. Building on what Susan said, the, the level of public opposition to this bailout has been enormous, ranging from tens of thousands of people across the state signing petitions and calling their legislators in the governor's office to, you know, to protest them all the way up the chain of the political ladder to the state legislature where multiple bills were introduced in the last legislative session to repeal you know, or suspend the subsidies until there could have been a public review. All of those measures really fell flat because the governor got the Public Service Commission in New York to do this by regulatory fiat. And so our lawsuit is actually the last stand for democracy on this issue because what we're saying is that the reason that all this public protest happened after the PSE made its decision 
is because the PSE railroaded this decision through before the public could even know about it. And once the public did know about it, there's been widespread protest, widespread opposition to this thing from one corner of the state to another. So our lawsuit is actually going to put this thing back where it belongs into the regulatory process for an actual public input process. We believe that this thing can't stand up to the light of day. And with all the opposition that there's been to it since it was passed, that they're, that they're going to have a really hard time justifying doing this thing over again. To clarify that a little bit, what happened was the Public Service Commission had put out a proposal earlier in 2016, and they had done many public conferences, which we acknowledge. However, what they did at the last minute in July, less than three weeks before they actually issued the order, is they quickly changed very substantial sections of the order, and they changed the calculation by which subsidization for nuclear was going to happen. So it was many folds increased. The study that the state Department of Public Service put out was somewhere between $60 million and $600 million. It was going to be the total cost over the 12 years or 13 years of the program. We thought that that was also a really low-balled estimate based on some really incredible estimations of, of what energy prices were going to be over the next 13 years, that sort of thing. We thought it was going to be closer to 3 to $5 billion. But then when they came out with the final proposal, sort of out of thin air, it drastically increased the cost of the whole program. And they never produced any publicly available studies or analyses to justify what they had done. And the other thing that they hid from the public, and I know that we have put in FOIA requests that were denied, they did not look at the financials of any of these reactors that claim that they are having financial hardship. All the reactor owners had to do was say, we're going to shut down because we're not making any money. And they said, oh, good, we'll give you the subsidy. They didn't ever actually look at their books, which is a requirement under the law for this large subsidization. How? Could such a shoddy process be allowed to move forward, especially with so much money and so much danger from these reactors on the line? It's Exelon and Entergy. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> what really happened here was that there was a political decision made by the governor of New York who appoints the, the commissioners of the, of the Public Service Commission. He didn't want these reactors to close. You know, we think essentially for political reasons. 2018 is an election year. And two of the four reactors that, that have been subsidized so far are in regions of the state where there's high unemployment and the governor has a hard time winning in those parts of the state. And so he made a decision that he didn't want to have job losses at nuclear plants hanging around his neck going into, going into an election year. You know, essentially, this was one of the most expensive jobs programs that's ever been created, as far as we can tell. It's also probably one of the largest subsidies ever granted in New York State for anything. How many groups got together for this lawsuit? You've been saying we. Who is the we who has been pushing back against these subsidies? When we initially filed the complaint, we had 61 petitioners. We had a variety of community organizations, both national and New York State-based and locally based. And then we had individual petitioners who had been early adopters of clean energy. They had spent money for whether it be solar or wind or opting to only buy clean energy at a, at a premium. And they were now being forced to pay for dirty nuclear energy, despite the fact that they 
made a choice. They had made a decision with their money that they did not want to support nuclear anymore. But now this order requires every single person in the state to subsidize nuclear. You don't have an option to opt out of paying for it, even if you have always had solar or wind or whatever clean energy that you have. And that's why we had so many petitioners. But what the judge ruled on at the end was he only allowed five petitioners to remain in the case based on the timing that they filed the petition or that they filed requests for rehearing of the order. So in other words, it's a procedural manipulation that eliminated so many of the original backers of the bill. Would that be accurate? Yes, it would be accurate. We argued that because the rehearing petition was decided after the statutory time when it was supposed to be decided, which is within 30 days, that all these parties, that the time that the rehearing petition was decided was when the order actually started. The judge ruled that, no, the order started August 1st, the date that the order was actually issued. So who are the five groups that are still behind this lawsuit for allowed to remain on it? NEARS, Nuclear Information Resource Service, which Tim is the, the director of, Hudson River Sloop Clearwater, the Indian Point Safe Energy Coalition, FAES, which is Promoting Health and Sustainable Energy, and Goshen Green Farm. How soon is this likely to come to the next legal stage? And what would that stage be? Is it a trial? Is it a hearing? What are we looking at? This is an Article 78, which is an action against the government agency. So it's a hearing with the judge and the other party. And one of the reasons we prevailed in the motion to dismiss is that the state never provided us with a record, the underlying record for the court or for the petitioners. And so they have to prepare the record and then respond. They haven't answered our complaint. And then we will reply, and then they'll, be, they'll set a public hearing. Now, the timing of this is we have no idea. We filed this in 2017, and it took until now to get a decision. So it's been you know, well over a year since this whole process started. Actually, we filed it in December 2016 initially. And then it was revised in January 2017, and it's been well over a year to even get to the point of prevailing beyond a motion to dismiss to get to the next step. So we have no idea when the hearing will be scheduled for at this time. And it sounds like with the election coming up in November of this year and with Governor Cuomo having so much on the line, I would just speculate that you won't be getting any kind of action before the November elections are over. It's unknown, and it's possible, and every month that they continue to get subsidization, they're making more and more money while, you know, ratepayers are paying every month. New York is not the only state with a legislature that has fallen or is falling for this sham of nuclear so-called clean energy and diverting alternative energy funding to shore up aging, unprofitable reactors. How might this ruling impact the situation in Illinois, which has already followed suit, as well as New Jersey and Connecticut, which are considering the same course of action? The situations are slightly different in that this is not a legislative action. This was done by the Public Service Commission, which is appointed by the governor. It's a, they're an agency of the administrative branch. So this was an administrative decision. It was not a legislative decision. 
whereas I understand in Illinois it was a legislative decision. So they're slightly different in terms of procedure, but the underlying issue of whether nuclear should be subsidized as part of a, a clean energy standard is really the question. Nuclear, as we know, is dirty energy. Nuclear is emitting radiation, thermal pollution, and greenhouse gases every day, whereas you have fossil fuels, which is now accepted as dirty energy, and that's what they're stating. They're saying, well, we need nuclear instead of fossil fuels. And that's what all the cases have in similar, you know, that are similar amongst the cases, but the process is different. We think, though, that if we can prevail on some of the issues in this case, that it would be very positive for the whole nation, for all the other cases. The battle over where these clean energy subsidies are going, the billions of dollars that are on the line here, is clearly not over. Where do you and where does this group of five organizations that are backing this case, what are your next steps? Well, right now we're in the middle of the litigation, so our next steps are, you know, preparing uh, our replies once they file an answer. But on the broader level, the next steps are for communities to start to realize that nuclear is not, should not be part of the clean energy mix. It has no place to be there. We need a public campaign. The way that the anti-fossil fuel groups have really been very successful in getting people to understand how fossil fuels impact climate change. We have to have a campaign that really gets people to understand that nuclear is not an option versus fossil fuels, that we don't need either form of that kind of dirty energy, and that to spend our money or to waste our money on supporting financially unsustainable nuclear plants isn't going to get us to a clean energy future. We need to spend the money right now to build a clean energy future. What can the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat do to support this case or support the moving forward? And I agree, we need our own PR campaign and we need it in a big way, if nothing else, to get speakers out and to get materials printed and communicate what needs to be communicated. What can we do to help you do that? One of the things that people could do if they're interested is to help us raise the money for, for this lawsuit. Um, so, you know, if people are interested in helping us get this case over the finish line and help us mount the strongest legal case we can against these huge opponents with, the, with New York State and Exelon and Entergy, you can make contributions to, uh, to NEARS or to Hudson River Sloop Clearwater if you just earmark it for the nuclear bailout case. Then that, that will help us put together the war chest we really need to take on these companies and, and Governor Cuomo. Um, I think also... There's going to be lots of other nuclear bailout and subsidy proposals that are going to be coming through both at the state level and at the federal level over the next several months. And so if you happen to be in one of those states, you know, definitely contacting your legislators and telling them no to these bailouts is really, really important. There's also going to be more proposals like this huge bailout that the Trump administration tried to push through at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission last fall that, uh, that we defeated just a month ago. There's going to be more proposals like that coming through for these market rigging and other bailout schemes over the next several months. And so if you pay attention to NEARS's website or get on our mailing list, you'll find opportunity to take action to stop those things from moving forward. You know, we've really got to nail down every door through which the nuclear industry can get subsidies and bailouts. And if we do that, we can put ourselves really on the path towards a nuclear-free future. I totally agree. You know, we think this is really a national issue, and we're in a position right now to be able to fight this problem, this very serious problem, in the court system. And we 
need the support in whatever way people can support this case to move it forward because it really could make a difference nationally. If we can prevail, then other states will be able to use it as precedent. From your mouth to somebody's ears, may you prevail. This is really a David versus Goliath battle. We're just a group of citizens groups taking on state government and giant nuclear corporations like Exxon and Entergy. They have endless amounts of money, and we are basically working on a shoestring. And the amazing part is that here, David basically won the first round, and now we have to keep going. And as I always like to remind people on this show, in David and Goliath battles, remember, David won. (laughs) Susan H. Shapiro and Tim Judson, I want to thank you both for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Safe. Attorney Susan H. Shapiro and Tim Judson, Executive Director of Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NEARS. You will find links to them and their work up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 347. Activist shout-out! And yes, the activists have been shouting nonstop in North St. Louis, as the documentary Atomic Homefront aired on HBO last night. And there are a whole lot more people who are joining the ranks of those shouting activists. A crowd of over 200 got together to view the film in North St. Louis, and viewing parties took place around the country. The outpouring of shock, anger, support, and recognition has only just started and has the power to fuel the movement for a full cleanup there and to sites beyond. I viewed the film in a screening in Pasadena last October. Director Rebecca Camissa was there, and I got to sit next to Just Mom's co-founder Dawn Chapman, who was featured in the film. I reported on the film and its devastating impact on me on Nuclear Hot Seat number 332 from October 31, 2017. Halloween. How appropriate. While I was there, there was another interview that I took that I did not have a chance to share on that program and seems appropriate now that the film has been released to the world. At the screening, I spoke with producer James Friedberg about some of the challenges that they faced making the film and what they hope it will accomplish. What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced in getting the footage and making the film? Finding out the truth. Not the truth from the parents or the people who about their children or the woman who went through her uh, reunions high school class book and could, couldn't find many of the people they had died. Not them. It was really government. It was really uh, people like that. They were always saying everything's just fine. There is no problem. But everything showed up that Rebecca would be doing the research on and we'd find out that that just couldn't possibly be true. And by the way, it ends with that problem still going on, which means there isn't an ending right now, because this is going to continue. What is your hope for what this film will do as it makes its way in the world? Well, I think we have to get people to understand that this this isn't the only place there's a problem. In fact, there's 517 that the Wall Street Journal had written about just in the United States. It turns out there's even more than that. So it's really about people finding out that what happened years ago when we were making nuclear waste and nuclear weapons, it is still with us many years later. 
and people are suffering from it, and they don't even know that's what they're suffering from. So it's making people aware of what's going on. And people who didn't know, and people who did know, need to group together and fight this, because the government is not fighting it. They're ignoring it or saying, this may not be true. Nobody wants to take responsibility. It's a story of government, isn't it? Unfortunately, yes. It's a story of almost everything now. Is there anything else you'd like to add? We're just going to keep working on it. We're just going to keep trying to find places that need our help and see if uh, we can do something about it. And get, the, and get the film out there so people will understand exactly what it is. One of the most amazing things happened here in the few times we've now shown it. The reaction of the audience has been amazing. Like, how can I help? What can I do? This is awful. You know, that kind of thing. Beginning to realize that the film's telling the truth. That's the most important thing. The film's not, we're not influencing the truth. We're just showing what's happening. We're not saying anything. We're just showing what's happening. And, the, and what's happening is the truth is not really out there. But you can see that in the film. The film is telling the story for itself. There's no book writing, there's no script writing, there's no narrator. It's just the stars are the people who are fighting to make this happen, to save their children, to save their families. So it's their story. All we're doing is filming it. And she's directing it in the process way that, just tell us your story. She's not telling them what to say or what to do at all. She's just filming their story, which is telling the story. So it feels very real because it is very real. Atomic Homefront producer, James Friedberg. If you haven't yet seen Atomic Homefront, HBO is making it available from now until March 15 at no charge. You can get it by going to HBO's website, and yes, we will have a link to it up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 347. And after you've seen it, Have we got an activist action for you? Once you know about the issues faced by the residents in North St. Louis, you can't look away. And what we need you, every last one of you, to do is to make a comment on this case to the EPA. We have 45 days total to let them know what we want done. Many people in North St. Louis are calling for these points, a full removal of the radioactive waste. Relocation of that waste off-site, though where it will be sent is anyone's guess. I suggest Scott Pruitt's backyard and swimming pool or a Trump Tower. And they want an immediate buyout of the homes of those who live closest to the radioactive waste so they can get out of Dodge. We'll also have a link up on the website for your comments. And a request for signatures on a petition has come from Dianuke.org. That's the Indian-based anti-nuclear site adminned by Kumar Sundaram. It's an international statement against the Kovada nuclear plant in India as being too expensive and dangerous. This is coming from India's former power secretary. And in Kovada, the villagers have been displaced forcibly even as the prospects of Westinghouse's nuclear project remains uncertain. Westinghouse officials will be visiting India next week, and that's why we need a ton of signatures right now. Of course, the link will be up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, episode 347. Here's today's final thought. Sometimes I come across something that so distills our nuclear moment in time that I want to share it with you whole. 
That's how I feel about this piece. It was written by Francis Boyle, professor of international law at the University of Illinois School of Law, and is a statement he read at an anti-war rally in Chicago. It was just published on the website globalresearch.ca, and it's entitled, The Illegality of Trump's Threats Against North Korea. 1. The U.S. government threats of preventive warfare against, he calls it DPRK, I will refer to it as North Korea instead, preventive warfare against North Korea are illegal and criminal. The Nuremberg Tribunal, in their judgment of 1946, which the U.S. helped organize, condemned preventive war when the lawyers for the Nazis made the argument on their behalf. This is an illegal and criminal threat in violation of international law. According to the World Court in its advisory opinion on the threat or use of nuclear weapons, the legality of a threat stands or falls on the same legal grounds as if the threat were carried out. 2. The repeated U.S. government threats to destroy or annihilate North Korea are an international crime under the 1948 Genocide Convention to which the United States is a party. These genocidal threats are also illegal and criminal under the rationale of the 1996 World Court Advisory Opinion mentioned above. 3. The United States has an absolute obligation under UN Charter Article 2.3 and Article 3.3 to open negotiations with North Korea in good faith in order to produce a peace resolution of this dispute. Instead, the U.S. government has repeatedly rejected these obligations under the U.N. Charter. 4. The proposal by Russia and China for a dual freeze is an excellent basis to produce good faith and direct negotiations between the USA and North Korea, as required by the U.N. Charter. 5. The United States is deliberately provoking North Korea ratcheting up these provocations in the hope that they will provoke North Korea to commit an act of aggression against the United States that the USA can then use as a pretext for war. China has stated that if the U.S. attacks first, it will defend North Korea, but that if North Korea strikes first, China will remain out of any war. So the United States is trying to provoke North Korea into striking first. 6. It is an extremely dangerous situation. It is really up to the United States to take the first step down the ladder of escalation that it has constructed here. Instead, it appears that the Trump administration is going to escalate up the ladder of escalation in the hope and expectation that North Korea will capitulate. This is what international political scientists call a game of chicken with cosmic consequences. Who will blink first? Anything can go wrong. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 13, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from 
Nuclear Dash News and Sean McGee, DunRenard.wordpress.com and Hervé Courtois, MiningAwareness.wordpress.com and the nameless person behind it, I'll find you one of these days, Dianuke.org, King5.com and Ace Reporter Susanna Frame, StatesmanJournal.com, DailyCause.com, CapeCodTimes.com, and the brilliant writing of Christine Legere, KUTV.com, Portside.org, BusinessInsider.com, SanDiegoTribune.com, NancyFaust, and SimplyInfo.org, EnergyTransition.org, TheSpec.com, DefenseOne.com, GlobalResearch.ca, and a shout-out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers literally around the world. 123 countries and counting. Woohoo! You, yes you, are the ones who show your love for life on this planet by being the kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness that you are. Thank you for gathering at the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat blog page and podcast page. Thanks to all of you who joined into the promotion last week and signed up to like the site. The rest of you can still do it too if you haven't done it yet. So be sure to stop by click like, follow us, post, and share. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weaver, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you know of a radio station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates carrying Nuclear Hot Seat, contact me with their info by writing to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you want to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy to do. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, we've got things color-coded there, yellow box, and fill it out to sign up for weekly email links to the latest show. Now, you can be of help in this too, because if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, you can send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com and give me the necessary information. I'll see what I can do. We are copyright 2018, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with more than a slight amount of snark, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. And if you don't want to use PayPal or online, email me. I'll get you the information for sending something more directly the old-fashioned way. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that when it comes to nuclear, what you don't know can hurt you, and probably will if it hasn't already. There, you have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.